Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I'm Arthur Snell. Nathan Law was the youngest person ever to be elected to the Legislative Council in Hong Kong. He became one of the leaders of the democracy movement there and in a short period of his life had probably experienced more political turmoil than most of us would hope to experience in a lifetime. His book just out, Freedom, How We Lose It and How We Fight Back, is an account of some of those experiences and also an inspiring text on the wider questions of freedom in the age of autocracy. Nathan is here with me today. I'm really excited to talk to him about this book. Nathan, welcome to The Bunker. Hello, thank you so much for the invitation. So, Nathan, as I mentioned in that brief introduction, for you, this all began at a very young age, um, an age that most people are still addicted to their smartphones and social media. So could you perhaps start by just explaining to the listeners how you found yourself becoming one of the unexpected leaders of a democracy movement facing off the world's greatest autocratic nation? Well, yeah, um, that's actually not a very straightforward story. Like I, there are a lot of the others who have participated in politics very young, that they are from a well-off family, from a political family, but it is definitely not my case. My father came in Hong Kong in the late 70s. Basically, he swarmed from mainland China to Hong Kong and to seek refuge and to seek life because there was a big family in mainland China. My mom and I came to Hong Kong in 1999 to have a reunion with my, my father. And I grew up in a family that does not talk about politics. They don't really want us to get involved because uh, even though they know that um, the Chinese Communist Party is bad, they had first-hand experience of it but they still don't want us to be involved and, and to go against this powerful regime. There was one particular turning point that really opened up the gate of me participating or, or at least trying to understand these these concepts like human rights and freedom. I remember it was in 2010 when I was in high school. Liu Xiaobo was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. He's a very famous Chinese dissident. And uh, the, the school principal of mine who uh, was very pro-Beijing, publicly denounced him on the morning assembly. Wow. And by then, I was very curious. I understood that people who are getting a Nobel Prize are the people who are excellent in their field. So how come a Chinese Nobel Peace Prize laureate was criticized in that manner? So afterwards, I was involved in student protest. And uh, in 2014, when the Umbrella Movement took place, it was the largest civil disobedience actions in Hong Kong's history. I was the head of my student union and gradually became one of the face of the protests. One of the interesting points you've made there is that it was actually the way in which your headmaster and I suppose what you might call the face of the, the sort of Beijing authorities, the, the way which he was discrediting a Chinese figure who had won this prestigious international prize that actually had the, the, the reverse impact on you. And moving on then to the student protests, would it be fair to say that it was, again, the actions of the authorities in their kind of overly repressive response to these protests that made the protests grow far quicker and, and bigger than they would have been otherwise? Well, I think, yes, definitely. When Hong Kong people ask for democracy, it was asking 
Beijing is to do whatever they have promised in 1997 when um, Hong Kong was handed back from the British government to the Chinese government. And we've been asking it very gently, basically. Um, Hong Kong had been known as the city of rally that people took place, marched down to the streets, and they did it really peacefully. And even a lot of people stayed behind and collected garbages. When you look at what had happened in 2019, when the conflict was so heated, you definitely couldn't imagine that was Hong Kong. I think one of the very major reasons is the government has not been responding to our demands, even though we we have demanded it uh, with a very peaceful and civilized manner. In 2019's protest, the largest one, it was 2 million people marching down to the streets which is more than a quarter of our population. There's only around 7.5 million uh, population in Hong Kong. And just try to imagine when there, there is uh, a quarter of the population of uh, London or of the UK march out and demand something. I, yeah. the, the government will definitely respond to it or even the disbanded and, and some others replace them. That's not the case. Um, on the next day of the 2 million people rally, the government just, the, China, the Hong Kong government just came out and said that we have hurt you, but we will continue what we are doing. And there's no way you to stop us. The democracy in Hong Kong is what we are promised. And it's so easy to see that freedom and rule of law without the protection of democracy, without having an accountable government, it could be eroded in such an incredible speech. So one of the things, Nathan, in your book, which I found really interesting, was that you give a little bit of the history. Because, of course, particularly here in Britain, a lot of people, they're well aware that China has broken the deal it made with the UK. But they don't forget that the UK itself did not give democracy to Hong Kong in the colonial period. But you actually give a bit more of that story and explain some of the reasons why it was not so straightforward for the colonial administration to do that. Could you uh, share with the listeners a bit of that that side of the story? Because it was new to me, and I think it will be to them too. Yeah, um, at, at the very end of the 150 years colonial era, the, uh, the last few decades, the British government was actually trying to propose democratic reform in order to re-equip Hong Kong people to face the Chinese regime. And when many in China wanted Hong Kong back in 1997, Hong Kong people were so nervous because they felt like they would face an autocratic regime that would use tanks to roll over their people. So back then, there were actually efforts from the British government to implement more democratic elements in Hong Kong's election. We've got our first wave of our direct election seats even though it was just partial in the early 90s. And, and we've got another one which tries to uh, maximize its democratic element, which actually the election in um, 1995 was more democratic than the ones after 1997. But Beijing blocked all those proposals. And in the 80s, they even said that if you try to implement full democracy, then it's easy for them to send soldiers into Hong Kong and to destroy everything while the British wanted to leave something to Hong Kong in order to for them to to try to hold the government accountable the Chinese government was doing everything including military intimidation to warn the British government not to implement a government that people could hold them into account if we just follow your story eventually you were forced to leave Hong Kong 
with great regret. Could you just talk the listeners through that period from the height of the protest movement to your decision to leave? In 2020, uh, June, which the government had proposed the national security law, uh, which is the law that gave the government sweeping power to prosecute dissidents. By then, a lot of people in Hong Kong, including myself, was really considering to leave because Beijing directly proposed um, the law. It circumvents all the local legislation and consultation process. It just took three months for them to propose it without any draft that we could read and then to pass it. And even for the Hong Kong government, they understood the contents or they had access to the contents simultaneously with the people of Hong Kong yeah. once the government released it. Before that, before the Chinese government directly imposed and released the content of the national security law, the Hong Kong government didn't know what it was about. Before it was implemented, a few weeks before it, we had an understanding of it. It would be extremely draconian. Basically, Hong Kong people cannot speak freely or even propose political ideas that the Chinese government consider deviant from what they believe under the law. And in fact, from today's point of view, when we look back, there were already cases that people are jailed for years because they just chant a certain slogan or they are arrested because they hold certain slides. So by then, I only got a very small window, maybe a few days, maybe one to two weeks, to really consider whether I needed to leave this place that I've been fighting for and the place I see home and the city I, I love. Eventually, I, I made a decision of um, leaving because I, I believe that uh, we need a voice to represent Hong Kong on the international stage and to continue that international advocacy work. And that's how we can pressure the Chinese government to change its trajectory. So um, that's why I left Hong Kong um, with just a backpack and a small hand carry luggage. To make such a momentous decision so early in your life is it shows the kind of extraordinary phase of, of your life up to that point that so much had happened that already at 26 you were going into exile. Yeah, and, and when you look back to the past two years of my activism, you could really see that it, it, it rhythms to the deterioration of freedom in Hong Kong. And that there's big parts um, in the book, Freedom, that I narrate about how we can really look into the story of Hong Kong through my lens. In 2014, when I was a protest leader for the umbrella movement, I was 21. And I was elected as the youngest lawmaker in Hong Kong's history in 2016 yeah. at the age of 23. But then there was still a kind of like hope that we, we can fight for democracy inside and outside the system to continuously to pressure the government. But in 2017, when I served the people um, for more than nine months, the government unseated me by weaponizing the law and said that I, I, I was not taking a proper oath, even though when I took the oath, it was approved by the president. And I served the people inside the council for, for a while. But the government decided to conduct a political persecution because they just won't, don't want to see people who dare to challenge them stay in the parliament. And afterwards, uh, I was jailed. I, I became the first patch of political prisoners who was jailed because of participating in peaceful assembly. So I, I was degraded from an honorable legislator to an inmate 
in just a month. So your book Freedom is about much more than just your story, although your story is an amazing story. It's about the big question of freedom. And you talk in the book about how democracy at the moment in 2021 around the world is facing a lot of trouble, a a, a lot of um, pressure. And you also talk about the importance of individual activism in keeping democracy alive. So perhaps we could, let's start first with the, the pressures on democracy. Share with the listeners what you saw in your own experience, but also in the wider world picture, looking at some other countries as well. I believe Hong Kong is just one of the examples of the wider democratic recessions happening around the world. One of the very prominent democracy index paper showed us that in 2020, it was the very first years that we have auto- more autocratic regimes than the democratic ones since 2001, which means that we've, we've been in these democratic recessions for almost two decades. And I believe that one of the major reasons is uh, we're just too complacent on defending our values. And also, we have helped a lot of autocratic regimes like China to be involved in international affairs to gain a seat in this gigantic international system, but without developing mechanisms to hold them, hold them accountable for their um, human rights violation. And for the Chinese Communist Party, they're just an authoritarian expansionist regime that they not only intend to impose a more sophisticated and technologically advanced Orwellian state in their own country, but they're also exporting this authoritarianism by backing other autocratic regimes like uh, the military junta in Myanmar, which just conducted a coup in February, and also basically using a lot of that trapped di- diplomacy, reaping important natural resources of developing countries by Belt and Road Initiative, and also globally attacking democratic institutions, going into democratic countries and dismantle the democracy, spreading disinformation in their own system. Well, these measures compound really weakens the democratic values and trying to elevate the weight of authoritarian governance in order to make a case that they are actually more superior than the democratic government. And under that background, I think we're, we're just unable to, to craft policy that can really hold this regime accountable. You give some case studies of how democracies around the world have tended to cave in to China's demands, but also some case studies of democracies standing up to Chinese demands. What do those stories tell us about how maybe smaller countries and countries that do not have the global power that China has should respond to the kind of threats and intimidation that China routinely uses when it feels it's not getting what it wants? There are lots of examples. China's using economic coercion to threaten the other countries not to criticize them and to bully them, basically. For example, when Liu Xiaobo was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, the Chinese government basically input and export control over Norway. But actually, that decision of awarding Liu Xiaobo was not made by the government, but by the Nobel Institute. They couldn't care less. And yeah. they tried to do this punishment over them. 
And we could we can also see Australia when they ask for a thorough investigation of the origin of COVID, the Chinese government basically using Chinese propaganda machine to call them the gum under the shoot and also implementing a lot of export control. But in that case, uh, that was quite different because Australia could resort to other destination for its products and the loss of total values was actually minimum. I think from, from these examples, we could really see that if democratic countries could really work together and make us a block, we can definitely counter those economic coercion that Chinese government wanted to silence the other countries because that's one of the only effort uh, leverage that they have. I think without a uh, change of perception, seeing these uh, rise of authoritarianism as a global crisis, we can never be able to criticize China for its human rights violation on the international stage. And what about the possibly more difficult question about military pressure? Because China, as we know, is building up its military very quickly. It's expanding its presence in the South China Sea, including, as we know, with these new islands that have been built with, with runways for military planes, and of course, putting pressure on Taiwan. How should free countries, particularly the United States, but other, other allies of the United States, respond to that type of pressure? I believe we just have to make it clear that we, we must defend Taiwan. Um, no matter how, how you agree with its sovereignty status, Taiwan is a democratically elected government and an independent political entity with its own election, its own governing system, its own culture, its own values that are, are drastically different from mainland China. And this is uh, definitely one of the most important democracies in Asia and also in the Chinese community in general. So I believe that we, we just have to warn China very clear that um, this is not a place that uh, you use military um, interpretation or invasion to take it under your control and everything that you you, you do over that is violating um, the rule-based uh, international order. I think for now, we, we all can see that it is not Taiwan that triggered all these things. It's just the Chinese Communist Party in order to fulfill Xi Jinping's personal ambition of quote-unquote reunification with Taiwan, but of course in Taiwan's side it was annexation, so that they are triggering the intimidation of warfare. We just have to understand that the Chinese government is the belligerent side and barbaric side in, in this argument, and we just have to defend Taiwan with what we have. I think the final thing I wanted to talk to you about was the role of the individual as an activist, because a lot of people listening to, to someone like you, you, you have this incredible inspirational story of courage, but also of loss of, you know, the, the loss of the freedom and the right to live in, in, in your own country. I think you are a believer in the impact and the value of individual activism. Uh, and a lot of people living in democracies who who agree with you about the threats and the risks don't really know what to do. So what's your advice to the individuals? How can they be involved in this global struggle at that individual civil society level? Well, in the last chapter of the book, I describe the motto of the 2019 anti-government protest in Hong Kong, which is be water. Be water means that you change your form, you change your position, you're adopted to the environment in order to best perform. And that is 
the thing that I'm doing. Um, even though I, I left my country, I left my home, but I still uh, adjust myself in the position that I could contribute to the movement by doing a lot of international advocacy work, by engaging with policymakers, by engaging in interviews and conferences, etc. And for the people around the world who wanted to change, we should definitely start by thinking what we can do in these environments. And we should not be afraid of changes. We should not be afraid of adjusting yourself to better suit what you can perform and started to think about small things to do. Actions matters. And I don't believe that there is any actions that are meaningless. Even though you just talk to a stranger, just display your information to someone who completely ignorant about Hong Kong and, and just doing small things like education and, th- and these things, it could accumulate. Social movement and the result of it have always been hard to predict, but it must be accumulation of small efforts and a change of time. So for me, just be water, uh, be formless, but also make sure that you can adopt to every single situation in order to perform. And I think that is what we have to do in order to put pressure to the government and in order to struggle in such a narrow political space. Well, I think that's a brilliant place to end this discussion, Be Water. And I just want to commend Nathan's book, Freedom, published by Penguin. As I said, it's just out. And Nathan, I want to thank you both for for joining us today, but also much more importantly for the incredible work you've done. It's not just about Hong Kong. It's about a global struggle to protect democracy. So thank you, Nathan. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to The Bunker. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider backing us on Patreon. Search Bunker Patreon Podcast to find out more. We'll be back tomorrow for another edition of The Bunker. The Bunker Daily was presented by Arthur Snell. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>